Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Last week, the National Ignition Facility at Lawrence Livermore Lab announced that for the first time, it initiated a fusion reactor, a reaction that produced more power than it consumed, making headlines around the world that a breakthrough could someday become the source of abundant clean power. 192 lasers consuming two megajoules of power ignited hydrogen atoms, deuterium and tritium, yielding three megajoules of output. The challenge, however, is that the experiment produced a millisecond uh, of power, and it was highly complicated, uh, a highly complicated endeavor. While uh, it may be a while before we're generating clear power using the technology, it can assure, help assure the health of the nation's nuclear deterrent arsenal. Joining us today is Dr. Steve Fetter, a nuclear physicist who is the Dean of the Graduate School at the University of Maryland. He's an award-winning scientist who also served at the White House uh, and the Director of National Intelligence's Intelligence Science Board, as well as the Department of Energy's Nuclear Energy Advisory Committee. Uh, He was also a colleague and confidant of Dr. Ash Carter, a theoretical physicist who served as the nation's 25th defense secretary, who sadly and tragically passed away in October. Uh, Dr. Federer, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, an absolute pleasure having you on. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information and Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communication sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of the Halifax International Security Forum and the Reagan National Defense Forum. We're sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. And I should point out that General Atomics uh, also so uh, played a uh, role in this uh, experiment. Um, Dr. Federer, it's a, a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, anybody who knows me knows I'm a fan of physics and nuclear physics uh, and theoretical physics. And, and uh, this is both an experimentalist's and a theoretician's uh, uh, dream uh, in, in many cases uh, realized. Um, but it also is a little bit like alchemy, right? That we can somehow turn lead into into gold. Uh, fusion has been uh, sort of one of these uh, passions. Uh, talk to us in a little more granular uh, sense of uh, the experiment and what, you know, because we've drawn a lot of breathless uh, coverage on this. What is it that actually happened in terms uh, that a layman would understand about why this uh, experiment uh, is significant? Let's start there. Well, it was the experiment was a major accomplishment uh, for the first time to have a a burning plasma that uh, generated to more energy than was consumed in uh, generating the reaction. Um, it's quite a facility that was built to do this. Uh, the size right. of three football fields, for example filled with lasers, all focused down on a tiny capsule of deuterium and tritium. And so while it is a, you know, a major accomplishment, I I was surprised to hear all of the focus on energy production. This has almost nothing to do with energy and everything to do with national security. Uh, This was, you know, born out of um, the decision in 1992 to end nuclear testing. And so really it's a way of studying small nuclear explosions in a laboratory. Uh, 
uh, because we are no longer able to do large nuclear explosions underground. Right. Um, and, and so walk us through how this uh, experiment, uh, right? It's a whole realm uh, that is uh, the ring of 192 uh, lasers. So talk to us about um, how the technology can actually help assure the surety of America's nuclear arsenal. As you said, uh, you know, the last of the weapons we produced were in the 1990s. Uh, so our arsenal is a little dated as everybody else in the world continues to upgrade theirs. Talk to us a little bit about how this plays into the surety of America's uh, strategic deterrent. Well, the physics of this experiment are very similar to the physics of a thermonuclear weapon or explosion. The lasers do not shine directly on the deuterium and tritium capsule. They shine into a little container, as you mentioned, a whole rum. And the laser light is converted to x-rays and the x-rays ablate, they blow off the out outer shell of the uh, of the deuterium and tritium fusion fuel and by conservation of momentum drive the interior uh, inward compressing it by a large factor enough to enough to where you reach pressures and temperatures that will fuse the deuterium and tritium uh, releasing uh, huge amounts of energy and that's essentially the same process that happens in the secondary of a thermonuclear weapon, where X-rays from a fission device um, are uh, implode fusion fuel in a thermonuclear weapon. And so these laboratory experiments in NIF are important in understanding the basic physics of a nuclear weapon. The, it, the first major contribution is in allowing computer codes, computer simulations, uh, to be validated. So the same computer codes that are used in NIF to predict the performance of experiments can be used to predict the performance of nuclear weapons. And the ability to simulate with a computer, uh, simulate accurately a NIF experiment gives you confidence that you can also simulate with confidence a, a nuclear explosion from uh, a weapon. So that's one way it contributes. The second way is to measure the properties of materials at these very high pressures and temperatures, things like the opacity of materials to x-rays, how they absorb x-rays. Um, and, and this is uh, necessary, vital information for any computer simulation to know how materials will respond at, those, uh, at the temperatures and pressures that are achieved in a burning plasma or a nuclear weapon. And then the final way it contributes to the reliability of the stockpile is uh, by, by training new weapons physicists. That we no longer do uh, nuclear explosions underground, so there's no way to sort of validate a designer's experience in that way, but weapon physicists can now design experiments in NIF and conduct them and get the data and interpret it and uh, use all of this process to basically learn how to design and man maintain nuclear weapons. I wanna to get to um, the design part of it because um, the United States con uh, conducted, I think, nearly a thousand uh, nuclear weapon tests, uh, both uh, surface uh, as well as uh, subterranean, starting obviously with the Trinity blast uh, in uh, July 1945. What do we learn 
Right. I mean, we've been trying to use supercomputers to synthesize, um, um, you know, to conduct synthetic testing. How does this play into in a more granular fashion? Right. I mean, in, in terms of model validation and otherwise, um, how does this change the game? Because, you know, just like I think uh, some of our audience will know in flight testing, um, we're now validating the model as opposed to doing flight testing, right? All the flight right. testing is to validate what it is uh, that the synthetic representation of the flight test would be. How does this, in, in, from what you know so far of this test, change our understanding about how we've been modeling and where we've been right and where we need to do better? Well, first I should say that this test that's receiving all the attention is just another in a very long series of NIF experiments that have been going on for, for many years. So uh, I, this experiment only extends uh, somewhat the range of knowledge that's been gathered so far. I would also say that w one should realize that computers today are vastly faster than the computers that existed when we were designing and testing nuclear weapons, testing them explosively underground. Nuclear testing, we did more than a thousand, as you say, but those tests ended in 1992. And the iPhone that you have in your pocket is faster than the fastest computer in the world in 1992. And the high performance computers, the supercomputers that are now available at the national labs are, well, I didn't do the math in the back of my head, but thousands and thousands of times faster. And this has allowed the uh, adoption of what are sometimes called first principles uh, computer models, that the old computer models were approximations of physics because the computers were not powerful enough to simulate physical processes on a first principles basis. Those computer codes of the old days had many uh, kind of approximation factors, fudge factors built in. Right to make the computer simulation agree with the observed nuclear test data. But computers are fast enough today that they can simulate all of the important processes at the level of basic physics. And what NIF contributes is the ability to do laboratory scale experiments to verify uh, and validate those computer codes to show that they do give accurate results. Uh, press releases. Uh, also said that this is the culmination of six decades uh, of effort. Uh, Lawrence Livermore is home of uh, thermonuclear uh, weapon uh, development and uh, experimentation as well, as you said. I mean, the ignition facility was was founded for that purpose after we stopped um, uh, 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 actual nuclear uh, testing. Um, what are the range of experiments that have brought us here? And what are the kinds of experiments uh, to come uh, as part of this sort of evolutionary uh, cycle, uh, the byproduct of which was that on, on the December 5th test, we actually produced more power than we put into it. I think you have to separate fusion energy research from the weapons relevant uh, fusion research. Fusion research, fusion energy research has been happening since the 1950s and it's focused primarily on it entirely different technique called magnetic confinement. That is the focus of most international efforts. There's a large international experiment called ITER that's under construction in France. 
And magnetic fusion is much more likely to result in practical power generation. It's also much, much closer than NIF or inertial confinement to uh, resulting in you know, practical power production. Uh, with regard to NIF, NIF was started in the mid-1990s, and it really was a national security program to improve the, uh, our ability to understand uh, nuclear weapons physics and nuclear explosions. It's not the only thing that is being done under this, um, under what is broadly termed this science-based stockpile stewardship program. There are other tests, so-called subcritical tests uh, in Nevada involving nuclear materials like plutonium to understand their material properties. And of course, the development of computer codes continues and the analysis of historical data and all of the, uh, from actual nuclear tests. All of this contributes to our confidence that we understand weapon physics and that we can predict the performance of nuclear devices and be confident in their continued reliability and uh, safety. Um, you know, um, uh, just briefly, you know, you, you mentioned um, that when it comes to power generation, I mean, the, the approach that we saw on December 5 is a very complicated way of doing it. As you said, massive facility, uh, the purposes of which were not energy generation, whereas uh, the facility, international facility in France, uh, in terms of magnetic uh, confinement is the better approach. Um, try to explain to the audience the difference between what happened at Livermore, uh, because there are folks who are conflating a variety of different things, energy production, as opposed to a nuclear <laughs> a nuclear weapon test effectively or a synthetic nuclear weapon test that just happened to actually produce yeah. uh, energy right and the, and the difference between the two approaches if we're looking at clean power there's a different way of doing that uh in terms of tokamaks and other kinds of technology as opposed to what it is that we saw here at livermore yeah so in, in nif uh nif has the largest lasers in the world um it covers an area equal to three football fields. So it's an enormous facility costing several billion dollars. The laser energy uh, from, from all of those lasers was focused on just one tiny capsule of deuterium and tritium. And when people say that it achieved ignition or, or break even that it produced more power than it consumed, there was more fusion energy generated than laser energy was deposited in the whole ROM on the target. Right. But far, far more electrical energy went into the lasers. In fact, 200 times, I think you mentioned that it produced about two or three megajoules of fusion energy, but 400 megajoules of electrical energy went into the laser. Right. And to generate those 400 megajoules of electricity required about 1200 megajoules of thermal energy at a power plant. So really the real comparison, energy comparison, is the 1200 megajoules that of, uh, say, coal or natural gas that were burned to produce the 400 megajoules of electricity that went into right. the laser that produced the two megajoules that were put on of laser light on the target. Um, and that was just one shot that produced, even if all that fusion energy can be converted into electricity, 
it would only be a couple of cents worth of electricity. To right. practically produce power, you would have to not only have a fusion energy release that was, say, a thousand times larger, you would need to have 10 of those every second, right? Uh, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Whereas NIF can only do one of these shots a day, one or two a day. So there's just an enormous gulf between what was demonstrated at NIF and the capabilities that you'd need to demonstrate to produce power. And that's just from a sort of scientific point of view. Then you would have to confront all of the engineering and economic barriers to generating electricity that would be competitive with other sources. You'd have to take the fusion energy, most of which is in the form of a neutron. You'd have to slow that down in a material. And when you do that, it causes a lot of damage to materials because that's a 14 MeV neutron, very energetic. By the way, you have to breed tritium. You have to take some of those uh, uh, neutrons and absorb them into lithium to make new tritium. And then you would have to recycle that very efficiently to fabricate new targets. Uh, and you'd have to design a machine that could withstand the strain of having 10 small explosions every second for right. many years. So without disturbing the delicate optics and focusing of the lasers. So this is not a very promising way to generate electricity. Uh, magnetic fusion, on the other hand, is using magnets to confine a hot plasma at a much lower density for a long enough time that it will cause fusion reactions to result. And that is uh, more mature from the point of view of generating electricity. Uh, it is expected that in that this large experiment I mentioned, ITER will demonstrate the conditions for a burning plasma. Um, and, and that probably will happen in the next 10 years. And then there are a variety of groups around the world who are experimenting with other magnetic confusion, uh, other magnetic confinement schemes that could be much more compact and I think more, uh, more likely to be economical. Um, let me uh, take the uh, conversation back uh, to the national security sphere. Um, there are there are concerns that the nation that uh, invented the nuclear device uh, is actually losing the skill, uh, not just to engineer them, uh, but also to manufacture them. Um, there are a lot of security constraints um, uh, that prohibited uh, scientists from uh, writing things down. Uh, or uh, how do you gauge America's ability um, you know, we recently interviewed uh, Chairman Jim Langevin, who said, look, this is a delicate topic, um, but, you know, made the case that, you know, the United States does maintain that capability and capacity. Uh, on the other hand, there are those who say, well, sort of, sort of, um, but our very structure worked against us, right? Our development efforts were not concentrated in one place, but across the National Nuclear Lab infrastructure, a dozen or so labs. Uh, and, and that made it easier to lose actually key skills and experience given that everybody did different stuff. And it's been a while since we've uh, built these devices. How do you 
assess our capacity to be able uh, to do this work uh, as a nation, um, because it is something that is very important at a time when actually um, more nations are interested in either upgrading their nuclear capability or indeed expanding it or developing it from scratch, whether it's the Chinese and expanding their nuclear arsenal or uh, say, you know, North Korea or Iran or any one of a number of other states that could uh, go nuclear subsequently. How do you how do you assess our capacity now to to do what is important work? Well, from a point of view of our basic understanding of weapons physics, it's never been better. And I really don't think there's any question about that. And we do have high quality uh, weapons laboratories at Livermore, Los Alamos, and Sandia. They are able to hire excellent uh, people uh, who do good work. And so I say our understanding of the basic physics, due to the some of the things I was just mentioning, the development of computer codes on very fast computers, the NIF experiments to validate those codes, all of that I think has just tremendously increased knowledge of the basic physics. Where the problems exist is more in the production complex. And today it's a bit of embarrassment to say we are not producing, for example, any plutonium pits, which are the, you know, the basic ingredient of a nuclear weapon. It's the, where, where the whole nuclear explosion starts in the fission device. And, um, the reason that we're, well, there are, I guess, many reasons why we've been unable uh, to do this, or maybe unwilling would be a better word, uh, that, you know, today safety concerns are much more paramount than they were during the Cold War when all the emphasis was on production. Also, during the Cold War, we were producing nuclear weapons at a rather furious rate, thousands per year. And so it was easy to train technicians um, and the, you know, there was a, always a running production line. And today it has mostly been a matter of maintaining the reliability of existing weapons, replacing components, remanufacturing uh, nuclear weapons. And uh, the physics, the basic physics is important to know that when you make a change in a material or a component that it doesn't affect the performance or the safety of the warhead. Um, and um, our stockpile, the reductions in our stockpile have decreased due to, mostly to arms control uh, after the end of the Cold War, uh, have left us with a smaller stockpile to maintain, which is uh, generally easier. Uh, but we do need to rebuild our production complex so that we, because eventually we will need to produce new plutonium pits and we will need to fabricate new nuclear weapons. Uh, I really don't doubt our ability to do that, but uh, the Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration has, has had difficulty in executing these programs to build large facilities that handle uh, hazardous processes. I mean, one of those, I mean, there are a whole variety of elements that um, go into this, right? Fog bank, uh, which I know is very classified, but is, um, if I recall, 
uh, an intermediate material, for example, that goes into a weapon uh, to um, make it um, more efficient, uh, make the plasma more uh, superheated and more efficient, was one of the things that was sort of a savoir-faire, right? A um, uh, you know, there were articles, I think it was about a decade ago, where uh, folks were going to old age homes to try to find uh, how uh, certain things were, were being uh, done. Um, yeah, th there are two practical considerations to this, I guess my question would be, but practical consideration number one is, do we do we have recorded all the skills? Because we find throughout the history of engineering and science that sometimes um, you know, it falls to a handful of people who used to know how to do things. And then, you know, we forget how to make Roman concrete because nobody wrote the recipe down. Right. Um, and how much of it is, um, you know, how much of this is recoverable at this point and easily recoverable and the extent to which we have to go to uh, our French and British friends, for example, to help us with it, who are allies and have capabilities in this field. I think what we've discovered is there is a lot of what people call tacit knowledge involved in the manufacture of any complex device. It's hard to record everything that you know is important. Uh, there was an effort to do that in the 1990s to interview weapon designers and, and the engineers responsible for manufacture to try to capture as much of that tacit knowledge as possible, but it's difficult to <laughs> capture everything. But that is why I think, uh, you know, that's why the understanding of the basic physics is so important. There's none of this is magic. Uh, we really do know what the basic physics is. And as long as we're able to capture that uh, accurately in computer simulations, we should be able to understand what the differences would be if you're unable to manufacture exactly a certain material or you have to change a component. I, I think for the people who are worried about the state of our weapon complex, the, the question to ask them would be, and, and you could do this with laboratory directors or the, um, the commander of STRATCOM, ask if they would want to trade our weapons complex for China's or Russia's or even the UK's or France, I'm sure they would say no, because uh, our, our facilities are excellent, our people are excellent, and our understanding of the basic physics is more advanced than any other country. So uh, I, I am not that worried about our ability to maintain a safe and secure and reliable nuclear arsenal without nuclear testing. Um, and, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, and we, we also have to bear in mind that that these weapons are held as a deterrent. That um, you know we don't have, we hope never to use them. That we maintain them in a state of readiness so that other countries know that if they were ever to attack us with nuclear weapons, we could retaliate. We could uh, retaliate with devastating force. And I don't think any other country would, would doubt our ability to do that. It's hard to imagine any circumstance in which Russia or China would say, 
Oh, the, the, the U.S. weapons are getting old. I'm not sure they know how to maintain them. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, test this out. Um, right. that, that seems to me to be extremely unlikely. As you said, uh, we now have uh, supercomputers in our pockets. Uh, and there is a um, concern that we are entering a new nuclear age. Uh, obviously, China is uh, expanding its nuclear arsenal. Uh, there is no doubt that Iran will at some point, every nation that's ever wanted to develop a nuclear weapon has done so. This technology cuts both ways. It allows us uh, to develop and refine our techniques, uh, but at the same time, allow other nations to develop nuclear capability as well. How do we need to be thinking as we enter this new nuclear age uh, about proliferation and the fundamental fundaments of deterrence? Uh, as, as somebody like you, who has been as engaged in the technology to assure America's national security, but also a member of the scientific community that has sought to counter proliferation. What's that balance uh, and, and the strategic approach that we need to be taking at this moment? Well, it, it is true that as time goes on and technology diffuses, it becomes easier for a country that wants to develop nuclear weapons to do so. And uh, computers are part of that and computer simulation, but also other technologies like uranium enrichment, the you know, centrifuges that are being built and used by Iran and North Korea uh, were you know, state-of-the-art technology 40 or 50 years ago, but now you know, could be mastered by uh, many countries uh, for the production of the fissile material for nuclear weapons. So I, I really think the emphasis has to be on the politics of it, that with regard to our allies, uh, countries like South Korea uh, and Japan, and to reassure them that we are committed to their defense and that we will use our nuclear arsenal to deter and, if necessary, respond to any nuclear attack on our allies. And there's really no reason for our allies to get nuclear weapons because we're committed to uh, our defense. For adversaries, I think, or potential adversaries, for other countries, it's a matter of convincing them that their long-term security needs would not be improved by having nuclear weapons, that in fact it would, on balance, decrease their security. And uh, actually, I think that Iran may have been persuaded about that. At least I've heard the foreign minister describe it in those terms that he believed, or at least he said that he thought that uh, Iran's security would be harmed if Iran had a nuclear weapon because it would stimulate other countries in the region, perhaps Saudi Arabia, uh, to develop nuclear weapons as a counterbalance. So uh, I think, um, Although the march of technology makes it easier uh, that the hard work falls to diplomacy and, and politics uh, to prevent the further spread of nuclear weapons. And, you know, that's generally been quite successful. Robert Kennedy, uh, not Robert, um, uh, uh, you know, President Kennedy said famously, in the early 1960s that he could see in 10 or 20 years there being 
two dozen nuclear armed nations. Fortunately, that never happened. And our efforts to uh, promote the non-proliferation treaty, to get countries to agree to forswear nuclear weapons have been remarkably successful. And there are only nine countries that have nuclear weapons. Right. And those are the only nine countries that have not signed the non-proliferation treaty. And uh, I'm optimistic that none of the other countries, that all of the other countries will maintain their commitments to remain non-nuclear. Um, let me ask you uh, one uh, last uh, question. Um, the, the term, anybody who's ever studied the Manhattan Project uh, appreciates the sheer magnitude of what was accomplished in an astonishingly short period of time. Uh, the United States was involved in World War II for three years, nine months. And within that, um, we produced um, an unprecedented technology and all the elements of it and laid the fundamentals for an industry to produce uh, weapons. And everybody now uses Manhattan Project almost as a, as a uh, verbal crutch. Um, what is it people need to understand when we use the term Manhattan Project? What that really meant and the extraordinary nature of the work that was accomplished at a theoretical level, at a practical level, at an engineering level, at a tactical, you know what I mean? The, the sheer, you know, there were bombers that had to be modified in order to, you know, all of this effort was going on in, in parallel um, with a technology that we didn't even know if we could master really, or, or would destroy the world in its first test, right? I mean, the, the scientists were taking bets whether the atmosphere would ignite and stuff like that. You know, Teller was putting sun cream on uh, at, at Trinity. What is it people have to bear in mind when, whenever that term Manhattan Project is, is used? Well, I think what they have to keep in mind is that at the time, no one knew if it could be done. And all of this knowledge had to be invented. And a lot of the Although a lot of the focus is on Los Alamos and the theoretical work done there, the design work done, bringing all the world's top or all the country's top physicists uh, to one place, I think the more remarkable accomplishment were, was at other sites, at Oak Ridge and Hanford, where huge industrial facilities were built very quickly uh, for the first time. Uh, the first nuclear reactors were built at Hanford in the desert in Washington. Nobody had built a nuclear reactor before that. And not just a test nuclear reactor, reactors that would be in production, producing plutonium. At Oak Ridge, huge magnets were built to do electromagnetic separation of uranium isotopes. And in fact, that's how the uranium, the high enriched uranium for the uh, weapon that was dropped on Hiroshima was produced. I believe all the silver in the nation's treasury from Fort, Fort Knox was used to uh, produce those magnets, for example. And I, I recall that when, um, I think it was Niels Bohr realized the scale of the industrial effort that would be needed to make a nuclear weapon, he said you'd have to turn the country into a, a, a factory, the whole country into a factory. And that's essentially what we did. And uh, what was even more remarkable is that it was kept largely secret. These enormous facilities that 
required tens of thousands of workers. So really just a remarkable feat in a wartime. And of course we were able to do it and no other country was because we were largely insulated from the direct impacts of war. The Germans had a nuclear project, but they just couldn't sustain the work under uh, allied bombing. Uh, so it, it was really a, a quite remarkable uh, accomplishment um, that it, it's hard to think of a historical analogy uh, to the Manhattan Project. Uh, and I, I have to say, I mean, the speed with which they were moving as well was was also uh, simply uh, staggering um, uh, when when you when you think back at it, and and the interdisciplinary nature of Oppenheimer uh, as as sort of the the stage manager of it also was was something that was yeah. uh, breathtaking. And I do think there is a lesson there that when our country puts our, its mind to something, when there is an urgency, when we feel our security depends on doing something, we can do it which is one of the reasons I'm not so worried about the production complex, because uh, right now there's, there is no great urgency because things are you know, pretty much working okay. But I think the Manhattan Project, maybe also the Apollo Project, some other space projects demonstrate that the country can do some um, amazing uh, technical feats if, if we put the resources behind it. Does uh, look, this is an extra credit uh, question, and I'm just going to ask it, and the recording is is going to run, uh, and I leave this to my producer to, to include or not. Um, the um, the new telescope is raising some positively fascinating questions uh, about the origins of the universe, um, and indeed. Um, even on a quantum basis, raising some important questions. Does that change how we need to be thinking about, um, does that change any of our sort of underlying fundamental understandings uh, from a, a weapons standpoint, if some of our understandings at a subatomic level may actually not be as good. You know what I mean? We, we could be quite good at making nuclear bombs while also getting a lot of the underlying physics at a quantum mechanical level, not exactly as right <laughs> yeah, well, as first, they need to be. First, I, I just want to say that the Webb Space Telescope is just a remarkable and amazing engineering accomplishment. When I, when I first learned about the plan, this is now many years ago, I guess almost 20 years ago, I just thought it was crazy that, you know, the idea that you could build something so large and so complicated that would be sent so far into space, well beyond any capability to service it, and that everything that would have to go right in order for that to work would go would go right so just an amazing technical accomplishment um a lot of the uh physics questions that are being resolved are you know we know that there is matter and energy that we we can't detect this dark matter dark energy that there's stuff in the universe that we don't know the nature of and we know that because we can see how things are moving in the universe um we don't you know couldn't we can now see back far enough that we see that stars were forming earlier 
than was thought possible. Uh, fortunately uh, for national security, I don't think this affects any of the physics upon which nuclear weapons are based. Uh, these are, I think that we, what we will learn will be extremely interesting, uh, but it will be in a regime of physics that won't bear very much on everyday, everyday reality, uh, including nuclear weapons. Sir, uh, thanks very much uh, for being so generous with your time and your insights. Uh, appreciate it very much. Uh, thanks so much for joining and look forward to having you back on the program uh, in the future on any and all of these questions. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you.